Hello, you're listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast, a brand new series recorded entirely in lockdown. This series is part of the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone, aka Elise, powered by UCL. Elise is an accessible, specially designed community for entrepreneurs who are disabled or whose work focuses on accessibility. This series is packed full of change makers, innovators, and partners all of them connected to Elise. Built on the Paralympic legacy, we're working with several partners, including Disability Rights UK, Plexor, and the Global Disability Innovation Hub to pioneer the development of products and services in and around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Each episode, you'll hear from our host, Matt Pieri. Matt founded Sociability, an app which helps disabled people find accessible spaces such as cafes and bars. This app is now available to download. Hi everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Inclusive Innovators podcast. This week, I'm super excited to chat with Emma Frost from the London Legacy Development Corporation. It was really interesting to hear about how Here East and the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone fit into the broader London Olympic and Paralympic Games legacy and how Emma's work started way back in 2012 and continues today. Hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you like it, let us know. Check us out on Twitter at Elise2020 or hashtag Inclusive Innovators. I was wondering, Emma, if you could just kick us off by giving a bit of an introduction into you know, who you are and what you're currently doing at the Olympic Park. Sure. Well, it's nice to be here. So thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, I'm Emma and I'm the Director of Innovation, Sustainability and Communities at the Olympic Park, the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. And um, I'm really lucky to have been involved in the Olympic project since um, way before the Games, in fact. Uh, so I do have quite a long-standing history and connection to, to the whole place and the way that this project has kind of panned out over time. Um, my role is really multifaceted, as the title suggests, but um, quite recently we've gone through um, quite an important exercise to bring together innovation, sustainability and community. Um, and I think that's really, really important because all too often you don't tend to find those three disciplines properly being understood as interconnected ones. Um, and actually they are, they're really heavily interrelated. And the more that we're able to build those bridges between residential communities and innovation communities and business communities and academic communities and underpin everything with really thorough environmental sustainability, um, that's the right kind of way for us to be approaching what is now being termed an awful lot as innovation. So having those sort of three pillars, I think is really important. Yeah, I mean, that's brilliant. And we've had some really uh, you know, interesting and insightful conversations with some other members of, I guess, the kind of infrastructure out in you know, the Olympic Park, you know, from here east to from Plexal. And I think that, you know, sense of, of trying to make this a space that is, you know, regenerative, you know, not only for the environment, um, you know, in a kind of traditional sustainability sense, but also in terms of economic regeneration and growth for those communities out there in the host boroughs. Um, so that's awesome. Absolutely. So, and I was wondering if you could just give me um, a little bit of an insight into sort of what, you know, your role looks like on a day-to-day basis. You mentioned, obviously, the importance of the kind of intersection of these, you know, three different elements. But I was wondering what that sort of translates to in, in some tangible projects that you've done or are working on. Sure. Um, so I guess, as you were just saying before, like uh, the whole Olympic legacy proposition or whole Olympic and Paralympic legacy proposition was framed around really understanding social, environmental and economic regeneration and, and putting them front and centre of the stage in terms of why we wanted the Games and what we wanted to achieve from it. 
And as I said, I've been really lucky in being on that journey from the very beginning. And my role has always focused on how do you bring in the community, um, so the social, alongside the economic and the environmental change that, that's needed. Um, and so my role is, is wonderfully varied and that means that my day to day shifts quite a lot. So just this morning, I've, um, I've had uh, three meetings um, with either members of the community or about a park panel, like a reference group that we are, um, that we use as a kind of strategic forum for residents and local businesses and representative groups to engage with us very, very regularly at a senior level at the Olympic Park. Um, so we've been working on like what's the structure of that next meeting, what are the presentations and the decisions that we're taking to that group. Um, and then I've also been doing um, work on presenting our innovation strategy and doing the kind of business modelling and the governance for what our innovation district in the park is, is going to look like over the next 10 years. So it's quite a, a, a disparate spread of activity in, in just the last four hours. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> great. Well, I'm sure that maps uh, more broadly across the last, you know, 20 years or 14 years. Um, that's great. So I was wondering then if we could go back to um, when you started, I guess, working on the London Legacy. I've got here since 2006, but if it's before or after that, feel free to, um, to go back to then. Um, I'd just be very keen to hear of like what the vision was back then, um, how you think, you know, I guess the games themselves sort of catalyzed or shifted or you know whether or not that was kind of a juncture point and then like a, the trend that we're on now so sort of three stages of kind of you know conception you know the the actual games themselves and then like executing now on this sort of post games you know legacy yeah you're absolutely right there there have been lots of chapters in the story and the story is by no means told or complete now there are many more chapters to come and i think that's quite important to start off with the understanding that the whole vision around wanting to bid for the 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games was, was totally framed around the long-term, and I re mean really long-term, like multi-generational legacy that we wanted to see in terms of the, the social, the economic, and the environmental improvements in the area where the Games were hosted. So that was always core. That, that was the absolute kind of North Star and mission. And that set our... Um, our bid, our Olympic and Paralympic bid, apart from any of the others that had been before. So other host cities had thought about and then to a certain extent had achieved elements of transformation afterwards. But what they'd never done is major on that being the whole mantra and mission of wanting to host the Games in the first place. So that was quite a radical shift in mindsets, both in the Olympic and Paralympic world, you know, with the IOC and others, um, but also in terms of the, the statement that we put out publicly and politically from the very beginning. This was about a kind of 50 year plus regen mission to invest properly in the communities that would be hosting the Games. Um, and I think tracking that through has been, has been a really, really interesting journey thus far. You know, we have got further to go, as I say. Um, for me, I always, I always reflect back on um, the opening ceremony, actually, because obviously there was massive build-up before that and huge amounts of work on all of the, the legacy planning. So we had a really, really clear blueprint of exactly what would happen from the day after the Games. Like, we had planned out, you know, road networks. We planned out... Um, work that had to happen to the venues that were being taken away. We planned out work that had to happen to the venues that were staying, you know, what, what had to happen in terms of taking away the, um, the extra seat structures and some of the extra capacity, bridges that needed to be removed, long-term homes and, and schools and healthcare facilities that had to go in. We had a really good blueprint of 
what the at that stage it was called the legacy master plan framework needed to be you know what the sort of design scheme was for the overall park and the surrounding area and although all that work had been done it wasn't until the opening ceremony kicked off that i got that amazing sense of excitement and energy and pride that millions of other people did who were watching it and tuning in from different sources that that's when i first had real belief like okay this is gonna happen this is actually gonna really happen and it's not just gonna happen it's gonna happen amazingly well like there is optimism and there is ambition and there's potential and as i say pride like that's one of the most important things that that ceremony marked out to me and many many others it was that feeling that we can really do this we are a nation that knows how to come together and achieve great things we've done it before and we're doing it right here now again and and from that moment on i remember thinking we have something magical to work with here you know we've, we've got the beginnings of a new type of energy doesn't mean everything's going to be easy doesn't mean everyone is fully um happy about a lot of the changes that are going to come because in the world of regen they never are like there are always trade-offs and there are always balances to be struck but it does mean that we've got a starting point that is one built on pride and potential and i wasn't certain before that moment that we really had that that kind of platform to work from but the opening ceremony to me created that that mood board and that energy and um, that, that has then fueled the next 10 years worth of activity and work in the right direction Awesome. I mean, some of the trade-offs that you mentioned, I was wondering if you might be able to give us a couple of examples of, of what some of the competing, you know, I guess, priorities or, or conceptions were at the time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, we've gone through, uh, at the time when we were working, we went through multiple iterations of what this sort of legacy plan needed to be. And for example, what the balance of um, what the balance of workspace and business space and retail space needed to be compared to housing. So we started off having a very housing heavy plan. You know, we were, we were mainly building just homes um, and gradually the iterative kind of realization of some of those trade-offs, some of those discussions, thinking about that social, economic and environmental balance that you always have to strike. We realized that it, it wouldn't create the sort of place, the sort of holistic piece of city that we need to create and that we now see forming in and around the Olympic Park um, if we just built homes. That, that wasn't actually going to generate the sort of employment um, opportunities, the educational and talent pipeline uplift that we need. It wasn't going to create the visitor economy, the nighttime economy, the kind of cultural icons um, and, and institutions that we, we wanted to land in the area. It wasn't going to put us on the map globally, which is what we've done. Um, so actually we needed to have um, we needed to have a more blended approach to a balanced plan that, that got the right split between housing and employment space and visitor space and, and visitor features and uh, cultural offer versus daytime and nighttime offer and, and all those different things. And I guess how have you been thinking about that sort of, you know, as it's been playing out in sort of the eight years since, since the Olympics? Um, has it been, you know, smooth sailing or what are some of the kind of, you know, big things that have, that have popped up here and there that you've been working through in terms of delivering on that plan now? So we are making really good progress. Um, as I say, you know, we are in a different position from any other host city that's ever been uh, before us, you know, in terms of achieving on the legacy commitments that we set out. And we do now have quite a phenomenal place that's that's been established 
um, on the park. So, you know, eight years on from, from hosting the games, we've got a kind of thriving cluster of global names whether you know businesses like BT Sport, Ford Mobility, the FCA, education, research institutions. You know we've got um, we've got a whole cluster of universities from UCL, UAL, Loughborough University, and others all on the park. We've got the, the venues that um, are the sporting and major cultural venues and event spaces on the park. We've got Westfield, the most successful shopping centre in the whole of Northern Europe. You know Westfield Stratford. Um, we and then we've also got Perhaps more importantly than any of the new things, we've also got the most amazing collection of local economic or local ecosystem players that were already there and that has intensified. So the likes of Hackneywick and Fish Island, the creative um, cluster and concentration of different industries and studios and workspace there. Um, and the Stratford Original, uh, which is the business improvement district along Stratford High Street, you know, we've still got strongholds of local economic and residential and cultural creative activity happening alongside the shiny and the new. Um, so I think we are getting closer to this, this sort of um, blended ecosystem of business space, academic space, cultural space, residential space, learning space, um, and, and just general kind of visitor space and leisure space um, that you certainly don't see in any other host cities after the Olympic and Paralympic Games. And to be honest, you don't always see in a lot of other cities or regions within cities. I think we sometimes forget an incredible mix of assets and offers we've got around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park and how that, that sits nestled in the most amazing, diverse, young and diverse community that frames it and the most amazing diverse representation of different startups and enterprises um, and freelancers and different kind of creative workspaces and organizations we're in a real hotbed of entrepreneurial kind of spirit and diverse innovation and activity yeah awesome and um, and one thing that we spoke with with gavin from here about was i guess just how to kind of ensure that I guess two things that like, you know, one, the communities that were there originally feel engaged in this process and have bought into it and get a say. And actually, you know, it isn't just sort of, uh, you know, an advanced gentrification that pushes them out eventually. But, you know, um, in the meantime, sort of <laughs> purports to be, you know, a social regeneration. So one, I guess, is like to what extent and how it just gives a bit more insight into how like the local community has been involved in that process and to what extent they have, you know, like inputs into things and decisions and stuff made around the Olympic Park in terms of its you know strategy and planning, um, and then I guess secondly, like in a slightly more broader perspective, like how you you and th through some of these things I imagine, but how the the organisation is trying to guard against you know the perception changing too much of this space, like it becoming essentially just known for the fact that there's Westfield and BT and and Ford and big names that you know essentially crowd out all the you know brilliant diversity that's there. I think that's a really, really good question because it's absolutely essential. Like the, our starting point was always the improvements and the investment that's made in this area has to be for the benefit of the local people and the local businesses there without question. And if we don't deliver on that, then we haven't actually achieved our legacy. So um, it is like the, the North Star guiding all of what we do. How do we support local economic social return? Um, that doesn't mean that it's easy. I think the first thing to acknowledge is 
it's about um, a proper in-depth two-way relationship. You know, you, you have to be able to share and communicate and work iteratively over time. It does take a lot of time. So you have to be able to, to invest in those relationships and that trust in a local area for decades. You really have to be willing to see that through. And that point about it being two-way is really important as well. So it's, it's not a kind of top-down communication strategy, just explaining things that are going on or getting the messaging in a tone or a way that might be digestible or acceptable. It's much more about listening and responding to the issues, learning to them, learning with them, um, those issues and, and trying things, you know, trying in an iterative way. Let's have a go at this and see what works and have an honest conversation, an honest review of did that achieve what we wanted to? No, not really. Let's, let's stop that and try something else, you know. So I, I think just it sounds really basic and really simple, but starting with those sort of um, philosophies of practice to begin with. So the focus has to be about building trust and relationships, two way working channels with a long term outlook. Unless you start with those things, you cannot be genuine about the way that you go about proper community led regeneration. In terms of where we're at so far, as I say, we're at the beginning of a journey and it's quite a long journey. Um, we have made some really good progress and we have always been genuine about the engagement work that we wanted to do. A really good example of that is way back in 2009, we started what was called our Legacy Youth Panel back then, which was uh, to create a cohort of 40 to 50 young people from the local boroughs that surround the park. So there are four boroughs that surround the park. And we recruited our first cohort of about 50 young people to join our youth panel to help us directly inform the master planning work, the design detail to work alongside us, the landscape architects, the designers, the economic analysis team, you know, we genuinely brought them into the meetings, into the sessions. We brought them up to speed on what master planning is all about, you know, what kind of economic geography and economic development is all about. We shared a lot of those trade-offs and those challenges. We were really honest about if we do this, then we get this. If we do this, you know, if we build this many homes, we get this much return and then we can reinvest that in this, but we lose this much green space. You know, so it was it's a modeling game. It's you know, we we properly presented all of the ins and outs. And through that, we've continued every year to recruit a, a new cohort of young people. Some of them stay with us on our Legacy Youth Voice Group. Um, we've now engaged over 500 um, young people in that, that sort of system of working, in training them up in, um, in, in what urban regeneration is all about, but also in what citizen empowerment is about and how you engage with your area within your communities, within with institutions, how you speak to power, how you engage effectively with boards and with your local councillors and your local authority and with public sector and private sector companies. So that in itself as one example, you know, the work that we've done through youth engagement and the way that we've sustained that over time and remained really committed to it, I think highlights um, how, how much we care about doing genuine community engagement and, and, and building that in to all levels of our operation and our organisation. So now as a result of the youth work that we started about 10 years ago, as I said, we've, we've now got a full youth board. And so we, we recruit and we employ young people to form a youth board. And one of those representatives sits on our full board and we've got um, subcommittees. They're involved in all the subcommittees. So they have access to all the decision-making and the powers and the kind of official structure of our board. And they are directly involved in, in shaping the kind of the future of what this place is gonna become and is becoming as we speak. 
Yeah, awesome. I mean, thanks so much for taking us through, you know, the various like different strategies. I think one of the big things that, you know, particularly um, we see in the space of disability, you know, consultation, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but is just the sort of the idea of having, you know, people who come in and they, they, they consulted and they're kind of the, the token voice, but then they're, they're not involved in the decision-making processes or they're not kind of involved in the ongoing fashion um, or they, you know, like to your point, they're not upskilled to be able to engage with these players and these kind of institutional partners in the future as well. And I think a lot of the time it gets used as like a, you know, stamp of approval or rubber stamping of approval that we spoke to, you know, five <laughs> stakeholders at the start and we we said x and then later on we, we kind of just like did our own thing so i think it's great to see such a you know thorough integration and, and you know hopefully those community members also you know um encourage other community members i guess to, to kind of actively engage and be heard because um, i think that is important absolutely and i should say like that's that's just an example of our work or some of our work with young people but obviously we, we do across all different ways of of the community as well um, and i think you're spot on it's about investing proper time and training and care and attention to that dialogue that, that needs to be nurtured and maintained and it's got to be meaningful you know it's got to point to real activity and real action so another good example is we've we've done a series of community-led interim uses um, and the community-led is really important because the whole point of these interim uses was first of all us saying you know as i said earlier on this regen scheme is big in terms of uh, scale spatially but also temporally you know it's going to take decades to be fully realized and in amongst those different development schemes and development parcels across the park we've got a lot of vacant space for like sometimes a period of 10 to 15 years so what could we do that responds to community need community interests community desires you know for a short-term period like for five years what what could we deliver for the community now and so we started a program of interim uses with that that in mind but what was really important to us was that those introduces were community-led. So the, the initiatives, the things that they wanted to see as, as meanwhile uses in these spaces all came from the community themselves saying, actually, we feel there's a deficit in this locally, or you know, there's not enough outdoor gardening opportunities, or we don't have gardens, can we please have somewhere we can go and get our hands dirty and grow vegetables and learn about gardening? And, Try as that may sound, that was actually one of the very projects that we established. We called it Mobile Garden, and it was in direct response to residents saying, we don't have any outdoor space. You know, some, some of the residents near the park didn't even have balconies, let alone a garden. Um, and they were really keen to have somewhere that felt like a very safe communal space that was meant to get really practical. You know, you're meant to get your hands dirty. You're meant to build structures and take them down. You're meant to have, you know, different events that community, um, orientated and you were meant to be able to then harvest the the, the vegetables and, and have a celebration event and eat them together you know simple things but actually not all that common in the middle of a city you know we kind of lose touch with how important they can be to community building but how hard it can be to find somewhere to do that in the middle of Stratford <laughs> so as a result we actually embarked on a whole community design process to try and design and then build uh, what we called the mobile garden and it was called the mobile garden because we knew from the start it was only going to be in its first location for a, a number of years two or three years really and then it was going to move to another part of the park that hadn't been developed yet and we were going to shift it lift and shift this mobile garden so that we could try and use it as a way of integrating people and bringing people into the park but also bringing people into the park 
with a different kind of objective, you know, come and try something new, get your hands dirty, learn about growing vegetables, learn about meeting other people and the different recipes they use, you know, come and do something really practical. And we had a whole series of those community-led interim uses. So sometimes it's not just about the big vision strategy work and the sort of long-term decision-making. Absolutely, communities need to be directly involved in that. And we need to find better and easier ways to ensure that that happens more often. But sometimes it's also about um, more of the here and now and getting really practical with, with projects that people can get directly involved in. Because often it's the, the project, it's bringing people together with a clear focus and with a purpose that everyone kind of understands and buys into. That's where you can see the most powerful community action. And that's sometimes why communities often get a lot stronger in response to crisis, whether it's what we've seen during COVID or um, whether it's you know in in reaction to something they don't like, like a road closure or a housing scheme development going up on their doorstep, you often get the strongest sense of community when people are you know coming together and reacting against something else. Um, what we wanted to do was try and create projects that brought people together to react positively um, towards an identified need that they had raised. Yeah, well, I'm sure the, the gardens were well appreciated during the most recent <laughs> few months um, with lockdowns. I guess just on that vein and kind of a final point to, to, to wrap this part of the, the chat up about, but um, do you have an example that comes to mind of a situation where, yeah, either, you know, the Olympic Park or the organisations involved had planned to do something and then through community consultation and, you know, discussion and involvement, either changed their mind or, you know, did something different because it just wasn't either going to work or wasn't suitable or, you know, it had problems that um, had not been forecasted. Like a, just a tangible example where the community sort of helped through that, you know, engagement process, change a plan that was in motion. There was definitely, there was uh, an initial plan to do more community, um, we called them community centres on the park. Um, they were quite embryonic in form, but the idea was that we would have... Um, a collection of different community centres on the park. So this was in addition to the venues and, and the bigger kind of structures that you see on the park. And actually, it was in direct consultation with uh, members of the community and that youth panel that I mentioned before, the youth group, where we said, look, these are the different spreads of community centres that we're, we're thinking of in the design work. And their reaction was, we don't want the centres on the park. We want most of the centres to be out and about outside the park we would much rather see one single centre or maybe two, but you know, one base on the park that might be a community space or a community facility. Um, and then we'd rather see some kind of hub and spoke model with outside centres that are nearby. Um, and so we actually did change the plans directly in response to that because we took out some of the, the projected smaller community centres and we invested most of the, the attention, if you like, on what is now Timber Lodge in the north of the park. Um, so that's the one that's next to Tumbling Bay Playground and um, really nice kind of community cafe and, and hall um, attached to an event space um, and a garden as well. Uh, and then we've also now developed a series of community centres or are in the process of developing a series of community centres in the residential communities um, that neighbour the park or that, that frame the park. So that's something where there was direct kind of feedback on you've got the kind of allocations wrong here and the emphasis needs to be more around localised centres in the residential communities and just having one spot on the park. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks so much for, for running us through that. 
Emma, one of the things we ask every guest is just about the innovation inspiration. And so obviously this sort of goes back a little bit, you know, to, to the start we mentioned before of the kind of legacy of the Olympics and Paralympics in London. Um, but what sort of prompted you to get into this, I guess, line of work or particularly you just involved in this mission of social regeneration? What sort of drove you to, to want to make a change in this space? I think... Um... For me, it's always been about um, cities. Like cities are just really fascinating places and beasts. You know, they are ever evolving, ever changing. Cities don't stand still, not even for a day, not even in COVID. <laughs> There's always activity. Um, and the thing that makes cities function, you know, the lifeblood of cities is people. Um, they are the kind of the energy flows and they're the inputs and the outputs of cities. You know, that's that's what makes them go round. And so to understand the sort of human scale of how a city works alongside the, the geographical kind of scale and the, the design element of cities as well is, is quite, I just find it a really fascinating mix, you know, like what are all the different elements that go into city building and city making. And the most fascinating bit is the human dynamic, you know, so it's how do people co-locate, why do they co-locate, why do they live in certain areas, how do they work together, how do communities form, how do you fast track some of that, how do you support some of that differently. Um, it's more, it's much more about psychology really, you know, human psychology and, and human geography in terms of understanding people's connection to each other and to place. And I've, I studied that, I studied geography and I've never really let go of, of a passion for how can we try and help deliver better places so that people um, are getting more out of out of their life, you know, and more out of their communities. Awesome. That's really, that's really interesting. And I want to ask you a little bit later about some of your work with Echo um, in particular and that kind of, you know, uh, really innovative approach to this idea of community building, but also economic and social um, uh, regeneration or, or generation of value. Before we go there, Emma, I was wondering if I can dive a little bit more into, I guess, the Paralympic legacy and sort of the kind of inclusion of disability as a, as a consideration or a community group within, you know, all the work that you're doing. Um, the Inclusive Innovators podcast is, you know, geared towards inclusive innovation, but particularly given the focus of, of a lot of the Elise partners and, you know, the Here East campus on disability. So uh, I was wondering if you might just give us a bit of an insight into what the Paralympic legacy, um, what Paralympic legacy you were looking to kind of build into this in a more specific focus on the disabled community and, you know, London's disabled community um, and how, you know, that's being thought about now in East London and the sort of centre for innovation that's being built out in the Olympic Park for, for disabled-led innovation specifically. Right. Well, as you rightly say, I mean, there's so much work that needs to be done in general in terms of how we open up innovation to make it more inclusive and more accessible and how we understand whole innovation systems and economics so that it's not an elite super tech or super engineering or orientated conversation. Um, we need to think about that across disability-led innovation, but also across racial dynamics, across gender dynamics, across socioeconomic dynamics. Like there is a massive, massive piece of work to sort of unpick some of our structures and thinking around how we orientate towards more inclusive innovation. And I mean that by um, who gets to innovate, you know, like who's involved in that sort of magic mix of, of making things happen from entrepreneurs to engineers to business backers and funders. So who gets the opportunity to think entrepreneurially and be innovators, but also, you know, what are we innovating and what for, you know, 
are we innovating with the right sort of mission-led purpose and are we doing um are we doing innovation with a drive to improve societal chances or, or measures whether they're environmental ones or whether they're social ones or whether they're um about you know earning capacity and equality and access to markets we don't always think about innovation in the sort of everyday foundational economy sense we often think about innovation more like moonshot programs you know and how, how do you get people to the moon and what's the sort of tech and engineering involved in that so i think first of all accepting and working positively on how we make innovation much broader much more holistic and much more inclusive is a really important step uh, and it probably be you know millions of steps to be honest and then within that specifically as you said disability-led innovation and disability orientated innovation is really important because there's a whole sway of society that we're not necessarily um sort of addressing in terms of the innovation that tends to happen in terms of the innovation funding that tends to be given but also in terms of the kind of products and the processes and designs that are, are developed and um, so that's a real uh, emphasis uh, that's needed to, to sort of shake up the landscape of how we make the innovators more diverse themselves, how we bring people into the innovation community and how we support them to do their best learning and thinking and designing and delivering. Um, but then also how we change the sort of products and processes that come out the other end so that they are addressing more, uh, more diverse needs. And that's in part, you know, a big, big bit of what's come out of the whole Paralympic legacy. Um, so I think the Paralympics in 2012 was hugely successful on a number of different um, indicators. It was the first time when the Olympics and the Paralympic Games have been fully integrated. And it was also the first time that we saw mass ticket sales um, for the Paralympics and the take up being of an equivalent level and the energy and then the, the positivity and the different mindset that that then bred about, um, about the Paralympics, but more broadly about disability and inclusion and awareness was, was a tipping point for us as a country. And I think the park has done extremely well to, to sort of use that as a catalyst and then fuel it more with the work that's been led by the Global Disability um, Hub on the park. Um, and also with projects like ELES, you know, so actually thinking how do we take a lot of that learning and how do we face into some of those barriers and create more accessible opportunities for people with disabilities or people designing um, for those with disabilities. Yeah, I mean, th that's great. I think definitely it's a really multifaceted approach, as you mentioned, and, and I think you, you articulated it super well in this idea of like, you know, more broadly for inclusive innovation, but then particularly with disabled people, who gets to innovate? Um, and about what problems. And I think that's one fundamental issue we see, you know, just looking at the disabled community specifically, but I think it, it maps onto other minority groups. It's that often the people innovating about problems that, you know, disabled people face are not disabled people. Um, and often the problems that, you know, uh, disabled people face that need innovating aren't being worked on anyway. They're sort of, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of different uh competing priorities that means that minority groups and their kind of day-to-day -day experiences often don't get you know the kind of the funding or the the airtime or you know the, the main institutional backing and one of the things that we've been discovering in a lot of our conversations so far which i think is is really strong thread that we're trying to push here is that actually if we just look at innovation as a concept more broadly when you innovate under essentially more 
extreme constraints, for lack of a better, more diplomatic term. But when you're innovating for people um, who you know need kind of more creative responses, you generally get a better product or a better strategy or a better service for everybody. Like it doesn't mean it's only useful for disabled people. Um, and so I was wondering uh, if you could just maybe give us a bit of an insight into whether you know that kind of um, approach is something that you know. Uh, factors into the, the kind of regeneration plans and the sort of way in which the Olympic Park operates? Like, is there is there a sense that, you know, not necessarily... Uh, well, I wonder if it's about disabled communities, but I, this kind of idea that if you design things for, you know, minority groups and smaller groups of people who have niche, um, you know, less mainstream concerns, you actually, in the whole, sort of make a better environment? And if so, how does that sort of play out in, in what you do? Absolutely. I mean, you're 100% right there. It's designing in accessible quality. And in fact, a really good example of that is the, um, so across the park, we actually set um, whole new accessible design or inclusive design standards. We raised the bar of what the inclusive design standards should be when you're creating public realm. And um, so that's things like thinking about the type of surface that you use, the different level change between, you know, pavements and roads where there are drop curves, thinking about signage, thinking about um, seating levels and thinking about how you design public realm and different um, features, whether they're, um, you know, uh, plant pots and where they sit and what space that creates for people to move around and it's every element of um, inclusive and accessible design so it's, it's not just thinking singularly about for example wheelchair, wheelchair users or people who may have um, mobility impairment it's also thinking about visual impairment it's also thinking about um, different neurodiverse programming and, and a whole spectrum of different things and again to inform all of that work colleagues of mine led huge programs engaging with what we we call our built environment and access panel so that was a really diverse representative board who who critiqued and informed and went through every layer of detail on these new inclusive design standards so that was using really iterative consultation and engagement over a long period of time again to work on the detail of what public realm design standard needed to be maintained and achieved. And that has resulted in a much, much more improved overall public realm um, quality and peace across the whole of the park, in part because um, it's all been thought of in that meticulous detail. So the attention to detail and the quality of things like consistent finishes, you know, so that it is fully accessible for someone who might be using a wheelchair or a pram or some sort of assisted aid. And getting that consistency of surface means that you've got an overall visual quality that you maybe wouldn't have had before. Um, thinking about things like the um, the planting schemes, you know, and how that works and the benches. Again, that thinking about it from an inclusive design point of view means that the materials have been really well and carefully selected. The heights of them have been really well carefully and selected. Um, the way that they all sit together has been really meticulously planned. So the overall public realm quality is vastly improved because it's been thought about so much more carefully because it's been through this really fine tuning of what makes it accessible, what makes it inclusive. So I think, um, the park public realm is a really good example whereby in setting a new inclusive design standard we've actually raised the game in terms of the overall design quality and the maintenance regime that supports that because it's really important that these things are well maintained and kept up so that they do remain accessible um, so those two things 
give a really good kind of indication of why sometimes when you're designing purely with one purpose if that speaks to a diverse audience and if that's a really well thought through and inclusive process you'll have a much much better outcome yeah i mean uh, that's fantastic and i think definitely this point about like you know the kind of culture or approach to the design but also to, to innovation or sorry to inclusion specifically as being very sincere and very ground up and you know part of the the dna of of the legacy and, and the kind of park means that then other elements flow through whether it's the physical design or sort of the way in which programs are designed or the way in which um you know consultation and, and kind of integration of of local people is designed so um i think it's important that it does start from like a, a philosophy or a values-based position because a lot of the time we do see you know people tagging it on as like a as a thing they need to because for compliance reasons or for optics reasons or you know something that they need to do after the fact is like uh, we did x and then at the end of the day we tried to make it as accessible if we could but you know it wasn't baked in from the start and that has you know poor outcomes really um, it definitely does you're right and and the philosophy and the values system that you use is really important especially when you're designing something as mega as a whole piece of city you know, that's that's what we're doing here. And as I said before, you know, cities are made up of people. They are the ingredients that make them work or not work. So, you know, you have to have the right sort of design philosophy and value system to, to create those sorts of places. And I guess, um, shifting back to yourself for a second, Emma, um, can you maybe give us a bit of an example or some insights into some of the things that you've learnt, you know, working in the space with these communities and, you know, um, how being, I guess, uh, really close to a lot of this, you know, inclusive, inclusive, innovating, and the sort of the approach that they mentioned that, that we mentioned before, like the really strong values, the really strong consultations, the really strong integration with lots of different parts of the community in East London. I'm just interested from from a personal point of view about some of the things you've learnt or some of the experiences you've had. There's so much; it'd be really hard to condense into, um, but. <laughs> Because I think a lot of the time, just to kind of preface it, but a lot of the time people who aren't, say, from a disabled community or aren't from a minority background or whatever, um, they might want to work in the space, but they don't feel comfortable. They don't feel like it's that if they're thoughtful about it, you know, they, they kind of over, I guess, analyze a lot of the stuff, whether, you know, it's their role or how that interacts. Um, and I think part of it is trying to break down this kind of conception of us and them and really show, you know, yeah. actually you need to work with and, and you know, these are just people. You know, from slightly different backgrounds or different characteristics etc so we'd just love to hear your insights as somebody who does this and has done this for a long time of how that like process plays out from from um, a personal perspective so i guess if i was to summarize that um my response to that really big question in in one one line yeah. it would probably be you can never ever underestimate the value of lived experience mm. And I think everything that we've tried to do on the park thus far and everything we've talked about thus far around how you approach community engagement and how you make it genuine and ongoing and iterative and respectful and long term, it's all about building a clearer, more diverse and fuller picture of what the actual lived experience is. And that's why it's so important that we do build in multiple voices and multiple um, sightlines, if you like, you know, from, from different members of different communities so that we do understand the difference in lived experience because it is different. You know, you, you will have different challenges if you come from a different um, situation or a different background or if you are in a wheelchair or if you are blind or if you don't speak the language, you know, like you will have a different experience. And I think it's only very, very recently that we're just 
just starting to understand um, all of that at a very um, like national level. Like people are getting more comfortable. For example, with the Black Lives Matter campaign, people are starting to realize, you know, really the depth of meaning and the complexities around things like racial injustice and the implications of that through lived experience and what that then means for how you how you feel in a city how you feel in a part of a city how you feel in an office how you feel in a team you know like all of these things they play out differently for different people so i think my one observation and learning is that you can never underestimate that and you have to find different ways of tapping into it of, of listening and of understanding and responding to that and as respectfully and delicately and it's iteratively and I, I know I say iteratively quite a bit because I think like it's never a sort of one way A to B and then the job's done actually a lot of the sort of world that we work in is much more about different ways of trying to achieve a process you know and, and it's the process where a lot of the magic happens that's where you build the trust the understanding the respect sometimes the ideas you know that's where you build the potential that can then be turned into something that may become a new product or a new process you know um but you've you've got to value that process in itself and you've got to value the diversity of thought and the diversity of intelligence and input that's coming to you through different lived experience yeah i mean i think that's that's super well articulated um on this point in particular so thanks thanks for your thoughts there because i think yeah i mean i think one of the you know one of the um recent trends if you will um is you know this kind of bias against lived experience and people wanting data and people wanting objective measures and, and this you know not all those things are obviously important and we need to kind of particularly you know be thoughtful about that but there is this kind of i i feel like um you know particularly with like machine learning and the big rise of big data and stuff like that everybody's kind of looking for a quantification of something um and just i think really keeping in mind that you know you essentially only get data on things you measure and the, you know, the data kind of is, is biased in so many ways. And lived experience, at the end of the day, is a, you know, what we should be aiming to improve anyway, right? Like at the end of the day, there's no point having metrics that indicate well if people themselves are saying that their experiences are poor. Um, and I think that point about just like really valuing the process of people's lived experience and, you know, the content of it as like something to... To, to work towards and make decisions from and about and to do that in a you know in a thoughtful and measured way as well but I think that is a really important you know um, endorsement of the of the qualitative as much as the quantitative which I think a lot of decision making is kind of trending towards um, I think I think you're absolutely right in that but I do have a fair bit of hope that we've always had quantitative and qualitative methodologies you know even even through the world of the purest science world there's been space for qualitative measures. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. In fact, I think what we're edging towards at the moment is, is more evidence-based in general. So evidence-based decision-making. And yes, the easiest route to kind of um, access some of that evidence at the moment, especially with the huge ramp-ups in technology and data management, is raw data. You know, it, it is actually number feeds and data feeds. But evidence-based decision-making shouldn't ever be made on just data because you always have to interpret the data, you have to analyze the data, you have to apply your understanding of that. And that's inherently biased, inherently biased. It doesn't matter how scientific you are about it, there is bias that creeps into that process and that model. So you almost need to sense check that bias by having more of a qualitative understanding to make it more robust. And you need to sense check some of that process by introducing 
the lived experience that then helps you understand what the data might be telling you. Yeah, no, fantastic. Um, so just a couple of final questions then before we wrap up, but one I wanted to um, just to, we ask every innovator that we speak to um, about the innovation imagination uh, imagination at the end. So we want to just kind of forecast a little bit, you know, you, this has been a long journey already <laughs> from 2006 to then the Olympics to now, but where do you see this, you know, in 10 years time, where do you see, I guess, the legacy of the Olympics and Paralympics um, and particularly the role that the Olympics Park has played in East London or what do you hope to see it in 10 years time? Ultimately, I hope that it's um, um, like everybody's favorite part of London. I want it to be like the place that everyone wants to be either to study or to visit or to live or to work. It's like, oh yeah, I want to be in East London. and I want to be in this part of East London. Um, and that's a symbol of pride. And I think, you know, that to go back to where I started with the opening ceremony, pride counts for an awful lot. It's one of the best sort of indicators that we can go on in terms of what's the structural change we've managed to create in this community and in this place and if we can instill that sense of pride or grow that sense of pride about you know that this part of east london then that to me is a massive marker of success and sort of building back down from that i think i think it will always be a really forward-looking place i think it always has been you know right back to plastic being invented um you know the paints and the petrochemicals that all of the incredible inventions and innovations that always happened around this part of the park and this part of london um we'll i think we'll see more of that and there'll be future innovations and inventions that will happen um i would love for the park to always be a kind of future scaping testbed it's a place where people have brilliant ideas and they're supported and they're encouraged and they're, it's made able for them to act on those ideas and make them real, no matter where they come from and no matter what background they might have, um, for them to feel like they're equal players in this entrepreneurial ecosystem and for everyone to have access to their full potential. And that goes back to the educational structures that we put in place, the skills, the training programs, the employment support, making sure that we've got fair and good work practices, but to really make sure that it is a place where everyone feels welcome, everyone feels like they can live the best versions of their life, and everyone is encouraged and stimulated to not just have good ideas, but maybe play them out, put them into practice, and to, to be part of shaping what comes in the next decade. You know, what, what new inventions do we need to create around things like accessible transport you know, and, and accessible mobility solutions? And how can we have the park almost as a playground for those sorts of pilots and products and tests that are going to help more people live the fullest versions of their lives in the most environmentally sustainably and, and responsible ways that we can. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's a great vision. So hopefully um, it gets there faster than 10 years. Um, Emma, what would you say to, you know, Emma 2.0 sort of back in, you know, like you were back in 2006, kind of, you know, today thinking about a really long-term, big scale kind of, you know, innovation uh, impact project and and you know about to embark on it or potentially going back and forth you know and a bit unsure where to start or how to go about it how do you, what would you say in terms of some advice to you know and emma 2.0 thinking about an equivalent kind of career trajectory i guess as as this has become for you i think i would say um talk and listen to as many different people in the field as you can you can never go for enough coffees or have enough zoom chats you know like be be ready to just engage 
with as many different um, light bulb moments and light bulb people as you can find. And they will come from a variety of different sources, um, sometimes the most unexpected, but be open and ready to have every conversation and to listen hard because it's in those nuggets that you learn the most about yourself and your own kind of career strengths and opportunities, but also they can become the things that shape the, the kind of more strategic plan like, like we have for the area now. You know, that wasn't all mapped out to this degree of detail 10 years ago. There has to be an element of space and flexibility and an organic nature to it. So you've got to be comfortable working with the unknown and you've got to be comfortable working in the sort of the spaces in between the set milestones and creating moments where they aren't that obvious. Um, so have the confidence to um, reach out and connect with as many different diverse people and inputs as you can have the confidence to um, step into the spaces where things feel a little bit more uncertain and unknown and just go with the flow, you know, go with that and say, it's okay that we don't necessarily know exactly what's going to come here with this project, but let's, let's have a really clear philosophy and a really clear kind of vision of why we're doing it and what we want to get out of it. And then let's work with other people to co-design how we deliver that. In the last you know, few minutes, I was just wondering now if we can pivot slightly to something you're doing um, outside of, of the Olympic Park um, role, um, but you are co-founder and chair of ECHO um, and the Economy of Hours uh, organisation. Um, I was wondering if you could just give us a bit of an insight into, into what ECHO is and I guess how this ties into your sort of broader ethos around, you know, um, combining different forms of, of impact of economic and social um, and, and environmental uh, generation together. Yeah, of course I can. And you're right. It, and ECHO as a, as a system and an organisation does combine those economic, social and environmental strands really neatly. So essentially, Economy of Hours is a peer-to-peer -peer network that tries to put a total spin on traditional volunteering and traditional um, sort of sharing economy or, or time banking activity. Um, we started it, um, I was co-founder, um, gosh, about five years ago. Um, and we started it based on seeing that there was um, there was a missed opportunity really in terms of how we connect with people in our local communities, but also in terms of how we think of volunteering. It's it was traditionally quite formal and often quite rigid, and also in terms of how um, how we weren't really making the most of things like the rising sharing economy at the time and things like um, uh, well the start of Airbnb, Uber, like we were just at the beginning of all of those trends, they were really taking off and it felt like there was a massive disconnect between the likes of Airbnb and Uber and, and people feeling comfortable using those sorts of platforms for, you know, getting access to a, a house for a weekend or something, but not comfortable or not having access to a similar platform that could help them connect to people in their community or that could help them um, have purposeful sharing of skills or resources or time. And so that was the kind of the, the problem statement, if you like, like where there's a missed opportunity here to, to mix or to put together the sharing economy platform and the tech innovation that was happening there alongside um, time banking and volunteering activity that helps that we knew helped people connect in their communities. So um, as a result, we, uh, we started to invest in this skills sharing platform basically this this person to person this direct network of skill sharing platform with the essence being that everyone's time is equal 
everything was measured in time. So there was a real equality and parity hardwired into the system and that you could offer to share anything from um, your skills to a resource to a space, um, but it would all be measured equally using the currency of one echo for one hour. And just the simplicity of that system and making that really accessible by putting it online, um, not only online, so we also had offline activity as well, but trying to bring that simple exchange system together so that people understood, oh, I could trade an hour of my HR recruitment advice for an hour of French lesson, you know, and I don't have to do that with the same person. It doesn't have to be a direct swap because I will earn an echo for giving that HR advice for an hour. And then in return, I can spend that echo on buying in a bakery course or buying in a French lesson or buying in a swimming instruction lesson, you know, so there was suddenly we created a more flexible market space where people could firstly use underused resources and skills that they had to maximum effect. But secondly, kind of create a bit of friendly friction in places or communities where they may find it hard to get to know other people. You know, sometimes there are a lot of barriers to, you know, just getting active, whether that's through different volunteering or finding out who your neighbours are. Um, we live in quite a fast track society and there are a lot of barriers that mean people don't feel so comfortable doing that all the time. So we found that the Echo platform and the Echo exchange system almost helped create an excuse to meet new people and to reach out and try new things. And that was all people wanted. They wanted a flexible system and they wanted um, sort of approval and a bit of an excuse to be able to go and do it. And so by creating that space through Echo, we now have over 5,000 members who are actively trading all sorts of different things on the network or using the currency of Echoes um, in a fair and equitable way. Awesome. Well, it sounds like it's going gangbusters, which is great. Uh, where, very quickly, can people go to find more about Echo if they want to? www.economyofhours.com. Awesome. Um, everything's there. Great. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks, Emma. Thanks so much for your time. We'll wrap it up there. Um, but it's been wonderful to chat and I think a really interesting conversation um, about, you know, how to do, I guess, inclusive innovation, but at such a high, such a macro level, which I think is, is definitely a challenge. Um, it's hard to do it at a, on, a, on a personal level, let alone... Uh, in a in a kind of cityscape level. So um, thanks so much for sharing some of your insights and wisdom around that um, and for having a conversation with us. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast. Next week, we're joined by Emma Lawton, co-founder of More Human. Do you want to take part in the Elise program or be part of our community? To find out more, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash enterprise forward slash Elise or give us a follow on Twitter at Elise 2020. You can find out more about our virtual and physical workshops on social media, funding, app development and a masterclass on accessible comms. Captioning will be available for each session. We'd also like to thank our Elise partners, including Barclays Eagle Labs, Capsule Enterprise, Disability Rights UK, Global Disability Innovation Hub, Hackney Council, Here East, Greater London Authority, Inclusion London, London Legacy Development Corporation, Loughborough University London, Plexor, London College of Fashion and UCL. This podcast is powered by Sociability.